Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our final episode of Being Elvis, our six-week Patreon series where we have looked at the good, the bad, and whatever is in between of Elvis biopics. I'm Kristen, and I am joined by a very special guest to talk about our last film, Boz Lerman's 2020 feature Elvis, which just came out on Friday. Mr. Eric Anderson. Eric, how are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I hope you are too. Oh, I'm at the end of this. It's the last <laughs> Elvis movie I hopefully have to watch for a minute. The fact that I get to share it with you means a lot. Eric, for people that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your work, your interest in Elvis or background with Elvis biopic? I'm Eric Anderson. I run Awards Watch and the editor-in-chief and founder and owner. I've run it for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years next year, focusing on different awards races, Oscars, Emmys, and everything in between there, but also reviews and interviews, a wonderful growing staff of writers and contributors, including yourself at one point, Kristen. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to be here. I don't know if I have an Elvis connection exactly, but there is just so much fascination and content surrounding him, certainly post his death with movies and documentaries. He's just a figure like Marilyn Monroe and James Dean, whose legacies are bigger than they were even at the time of their life. It's fascinating. You bring up Marilyn. I've brought her up several times during the series because much like Elvis, Marilyn has had several biopics throughout every generation. It's been interesting to compare how Elvis is portrayed in the last five, now six movies that we've looked at. There is, if anything, probably the deepest connection to every maligned modern day past celebrity that's embodied in this movie, far more than it was in the subsequent movies that we've looked at. For a quick rundown of the movie we're working with today, this is directed by Boz Lerman, who you might know as the director of such loud, bombastic, generation-defining features like Romeo plus Juliet, Strictly Ballroom, Moulin Rouge, the adaptation of The Great Gatsby, which I've had to explain a lot about my distaste for that film over the last week. It has a script attributed to Lerman, as well as two co-screenwriters, Sam Bromell, who is best known for working on Boz Lerman's television show, The Get Down, as well as Lerman's longtime collaborator, Craig Pierce, who did Lerman's first three scripts. So all of them came together to make this movie, which stars Austin Butler as Elvis, Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, and a bunch of other characters that you really don't need to know about because they don't have a lot of screen time in this movie. It is a womb-to-tomb-ish look at Elvis's life from his teenagehood through to his demise, all told by a dying Colonel Tom Parker wandering the afterlife casino that is his Valhalla, apparently. I don't know about you, Eric, but I've had a lot of preconceived notions about this movie from the minute the first trailer came out. We all have been saying... I relatively the same thing. This is a Boz Lerman movie that comes with a very specific set of expectations. It's going to be loud. It's going to be in your face. It's going to have all the editing, frenetic 
energy of somebody who has done a lot of drugs. And all of that was there in this movie from the minute it opens with the diamond studded WB logo that looks like an Elvis jumpsuit. It's very bright. You just are sitting there thinking, oh yeah, this is about what I'm expecting. I was not expecting us to open with the Colonel. We've talked about the Colonel throughout this entire series. We started with Pat Hingle playing a guy that shows up for one scene in Elvis 1979. We've seen him as Bo Bridges in 1993's Elvis and the Colonel being this muted Machiavelli through all the way up to last week's episode on 2005's Elvis with Randy Quaid playing a Colonel that was equal parts P.T. Barnum, but also business genius and also maybe is kind of a bad person. Oh, no, we are doubling, tripling down on all of this. <laughs> this colonel is unrepentantly horrific. And I'm not just talking about Tom Hanks in the fat suit with the accent. Eric, to take us back a little bit, what were your first impressions seeing the trailer for this? What did you think about it after you experienced it? I am an absolute... Lerman apologist, complete and utter. And so my feelings going into it, I was already deigned to like it because I'm such a fan of all of his other work. The wilder, the better. But the trailer was a bit of a mixed bag because as much as I was digging Austin Butler and super excited about the look of it, the Tom Hanks of it all did give me some pause. It gave me a little bit of Jared Leto PTSD, like House of Gucci style. And that was one of my most hated performances of last year and of all time. I was a little nervous. But then I saw the film and yes, Hanks is absolutely ridiculous. But in context, I was a lot easier with, not that I liked him, but I didn't hate what he was doing and the choices that he was making. Lerman deciding to use the unreliable narrator as the framing device for this, not totally uncommon. It's an interesting thing, and I think we'll probably get into this in a little bit, because you're entering this story with only, essentially, the words and beliefs of this narrator. So because this narrator is such a mustache-twirling villain you're put in the audience position of, oh, do I listen to this super villain weirdo and go with that? Or am I extra sympathetic to the person and the subject that they're talking about? It allows a lot of sidestepping of Elvis history. But ultimately, and to your point about that beginning, that beginning was straight up Romeo and Juliet with how that opens. I was like, hook it in my veins. I am here. It is in both arms. I am ready. Let's go. You brought up the similarities between this and Romeo and Juliet, which the opening of the 96 Romeo and Juliet is probably one of my favorite openings. I can do that whole sequence verbatim. It's a good party trick. If you ever see me in person, <laughs> I can do it. In using the kernel, and maybe it's because I've immersed myself willingly in six weeks of Elvis, What's so hard to get past, first off, is the accent. The accent is a real hard thing to get through. He sounded like the villains in The Dark Crystal. There's a lot of lifting, slithering Like the Skeksis? Yes, yes. <laughs> he sounded like that. There's oh a lot of just slithering mouth noises in his performance that 
was just hard to get through. Unreliable narrators can work. We've seen them work. And we talked about how in Elvis and the Colonel, we have dead Elvis popping up here and there talking. But it was inconsistent in that. And it's inconsistent here, too. Mm -hmm. That was what really threw me is, A, the inconsistency. There's large swaths of this movie where you don't hear the Colonel voiceovering at all. And the movie is stronger for it. At the same time, with an unreliable narrator, you get moments where he discloses things that make you say, huh, I kind of wish that the person who was involved in this movie was telling me this. He says at certain points, why does he do that? I don't know why he likes music by the Black community. Wouldn't it be great if we had Elvis narrating this and telling us why he likes music from the Black community or why he makes these decisions? Ultimately, having Colonel Tom Parker be the narrator is really hard considering the overall point of this movie, which is the parasitic exploitation of celebrities. Everybody, when they're all feeding at the trough, cannot be objective because they're always working in their best interests. When you have the story of a man whose life was not his own, being told by the man who owned his life, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's like having the Britney Spears story told by her dad isn't really the point of this that she needs to find her own voice and tell her story. And that's really, I think, ultimately what I wanted from Elvis, because Austin Butler is the best part of this movie. Hands down, the movie is at its strongest when it trusts him to lead the film. Catherine Martin's production is second to none. Nobody is doing movie. it like Kurt. Nobody. It's a weird thing. The length of the movie absolutely doesn't do it any favors. And I don't have issues with long movies, but it's two hours and 39 minutes with previews. It's a three hour sit. Yeah, there are too many periods where, like you said, the narration is inconsistent. The view shifts in a way that doesn't work in the favor of the film. And the reason why narration worked great in Romeo and Juliet is because it's William Shakespeare. So having that gallery, that voice constantly going makes perfect sense because we're also familiar and used to it. A lot of Parker's stuff is really played for comedy when they have all of the merch at the house, which is pretty funny. I liked one part of that, and it was the I hate Elvis pin because there was something to it that felt like it was very much referencing now. Culture, Stan culture has such definitive lines of love and hate and how that works. Elvis even mentions that he's getting canceled. Every time I would hear little bits of language like that, that felt like it was commentary on 2022, I winced a little bit. And there is quite a bit of it. There is a moment where... Elvis, towards the end of the movie, asked the colonel, who are you? And he says, I'm Elvis. And I just kept thinking of that line from the New Yorker post that Ronan Farrow wrote about Britney Spears, where Jamie Spears said, I'm Britney Spears. I just kept thinking, oh, we're doing that. Which (laughs) It's impossible to talk about Elvis without talking about modern day celebrity and Marilyn. Marilyn's the same way. And I'm pretty sure we'll see a lot of Britney Spears comparisons, no different than we get when we see Marilyn movies. So you can't talk about these characters existing in a vacuum. They all exist in the same way, which is interesting how pointed it is. I noticed is there are moments where Tom Hanks is allowed to act. That's unfortunately the most frustrating element of his performance in this. It's such a prosthetic role. You're stopped by the look, the fat suit, the jowls. 
that you often forget that Tom Hanks is a good actor and a serious performer. But there's a scene in this movie where it's after Elvis's mother has died and he's crying in her closet. He has to go up there and tell him to come down and take pictures. So you have this point where you're like, oh, this character is horrible. He's going to make this poor guy go downstairs while he's mourning his mother. And the press does subsequently take pictures of him and his dad as they're mourning. But to have Hanks go up there with that goal in mind and to perform the sequence with Austin Butler and say, your mother's gone. There's nothing I can do about that, but I can be like your mother and I'll wait here while you and I will worry for her. It's a really powerful moment. When we had Sheila O'Malley on the last two episodes talking about the colonel, there is no Elvis without the colonel. It's understandable why the colonel is such a big part of this movie. But a lot of the movies so far had emphasized upped the Machiavelli element, especially as we got into the 2000s, as this was a guy who, yes, had great business sense, but he didn't really care about Elvis. He was this venal, cold man, took 50% of his earnings. A court figured that out and told him he was a horrible person. But the movie does do this really delicate balancing act, and I exemplified in that moment of there was certainly love and appreciation, misguided though it was, as we've seen in numerous toxic relationships. The most toxic relationships come from a person who truly believes that they're doing this because they love you. That sequence really does set things up. Now, mind you, it comes over an hour into the movie, and this is a movie that sets up Colonel Tom Parker's and Elvis's relationship. They don't talk to each other until the first 30 minutes We don't see their infamous meeting as we've seen in previous biopics. It's just one day he sees them and they're working together. Then they sign a contract. It's really confusing. This movie is trying to do so many things. As you mentioned, the runtime is so prodigious. It's juggling so many hats that I was talking to my mom, who I went to see the movie with. And I was like, there's a good two hour movie here. If you cut to specific beats The 60s to the 70s is really interesting, and it's a great stretch of time. Had the movie streamlined things, moments like that sequence between Tom Hanks and Austin Butler would have sung a lot better than being in this morass of events that are happening. There is such a specific nature and approach that Lerman takes with Parker here. It's a mustache-twirling villain. There's not a lot of nuance to him. We literally see him skulking around doorways and peering through stuff. Even in that scene in the closet when Elvis is hugging his mother's clothes. We just talked about this on our podcast yesterday. Hanks slides into frame. Between that and that imagined sequence at the circus where Parker is looking behind and Elvis is a few feet in front of him. There is... (laughs) a lascivious nature to it. It made me think of Lou Pearlman and the boy band manager era. They even splice in a little bit of Backstreet Boys into exactly. one of the songs. You know what they're doing with that. The Backstreet Boys and the whole soundtrack is amazing the way it's integrated. It is trying and it has a lot to say on how managers gaslight their talent make them feel that they can only succeed with them that only goes so far in a two hour and 40 minute story 